all you lovely people. Kirk Hamilton here to introduce another classic episode that I am bumping up in the feed. This time it's one from a couple of years ago that I did on an early track from Anais Mitchell and Rachel Shavkin's blockbuster Broadway show Hades Town. This episode was really fun to make, but at the time I had not seen Hades Town, so I focused entirely on the music. But now, as of just a couple of weeks ago, I am happy to report that I have seen Hades Town. While I was in New York for a live show with my other podcast, Triple Click, a couple of weeks back, I went with some friends to a sold-out Friday night performance, and man, it was really good. I guess that's not a surprise, but wow, Hades Town is really incredible. I don't have a ton to add that isn't already in this episode, thanks largely to my special guest, Lindsay Ellis, who turned up uh, in this episode partway through. She came on to describe the visual part of the show and to talk some about how that all works. But I do just want to say up top that the show, Hades Town, it really is something special live, and I hope that some of you out there have either seen it since this episode went up or have plans to see it. We saw it at the Walter Theater in New York. We had seats near the front of the mezzanine. I think it was in the C section. I gotta say, those might be the best seats in the house. The sound was immaculate. The sound mix was so, so good. And you can really see the stage from there, which is great because Hades Town's stage production is super interesting. It's a pretty small cast. I think there are five leads, there are the three fates, and there's a small handful of chorus dancers and singers, but not really a huge cast. And the thing that makes Hades Town so fun for me is that the whole band is up there on stage with the performers. There's one of each instrument. There's a trombone, cello, a violin. They're at audience left. There's piano, guitar, and upright bass over to the audience's right. And then there's a drum set in the middle. The drum set is partitioned off behind a sound-reinforced wall. And every other instrument is just right there on stage. It's such a musically cool experience to watch it and listen to it at the same time. Just because there's one of every instrument and it's arranged so well, each instrument is used really creatively and each player gets to do so much. And hey, having the musicians on stage and, you know, part of the show in that way, I would hope that that also makes it harder to replace the musicians with a pre-recorded backing track for whatever that might be worth. Anyways, it was such a treat to see it live. Reeve Carney and Eva Noblezada are still in the cast as the leads Orpheus and Eurydice, but we actually had understudies for both roles, which I'm sure is probably more common these days since the show's been running for a while. Both understudies were so good. I've really come to love seeing understudies get their moment to take on those roles. And they were both fantastic. That made it really fun to watch. Coolest of all was that Broadway legend Lilius White has taken over the role of Hermes from the great Andre de Shields, who had it on the original cast recording. She was amazing. She's so good. Hermes is such a crucial part of the show. Her energy is different than Andre de Shields, but she was just amazing. So it's really, really worth going to see the show with her in it if you can. Anyway, I could go on and on and on about the production, the set design, the creativity of the direction and blocking, the choreo, the the whole thing, the tricks they do with that moving stage. There are some moments that really had my jaw on the floor, but I will spare you all. I hope that you enjoy this episode, whether or not you've listened to it, and that you're able to see this show. I do want to note that in the time since I recorded this, my guest Lindsay Ellis has left her podcast Musical Splaining, and she has moved from YouTube to making videos for Nebula. So that's where you can find her now. So that's a little out of date in the 
episode, but I'll put an up-to-date link for her stuff in the show notes. You should really check out her work. Uh, Lindsay is amazing. She's also way better known than me, so you probably already know who she is. But anyways, um, that info is now out of date in the episode. There might be a couple other things like that, just because this episode was recorded a couple of years ago, but I'm sure you can just keep that in mind as you listen to it. Okay, that's enough for now. As always, you can support Strong Songs on Patreon at patreon.com slash strongsongs. Thanks so much to everyone who supports the creation of this show, this totally listener-supported show. I just did a fun patron Q&A over there, and I am very excited to get back to making full episodes of Strong Songs starting pretty soon in July. I hope that you're all taking care out there and that you're listening closely as always, and I hope that you enjoy this episode on Wedding Song, written by Anais Mitchell for her beautiful musical Town. When a string player like a violinist or a cellist plucks the strings on their instrument, that is called playing pizzicato. That is as opposed to playing arco, which is when they use their bow. Pizzicato is a nice percussive sound, and arco is a much longer and broader sound which makes string instruments pretty versatile. It's also just a fun word to say. Pizzicato. 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 Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about strings played pizzicato, strings played arco, and sometimes string sections that use a mix of both. We're going to be talking about a very cool song from a very cool musical that uses both pizzicato and arco strings. I am excited to get into it, so find a comfortable place to sit, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. I do not play violin, cello, viola, or any other stringed instrument like that. Certainly not any bowed instruments. It's one of the instruments that I've never taken it upon myself to learn, though you never know. I would love to play cello. I really, really love the cello, and it actually kind of has like a timbral similarity with the tenor saxophone in some ways. So I've always felt a strong kinship with the cello, and there could come someday down the road on some Strong Songs introduction where I mention the fact that I've been learning cello, and you maybe hear some weird cello playing going on in the background, but not today. So welcome back to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that so many people have been listening. Thanks everyone who's written in to tell me about how they're learning a new musical instrument or going back to an old instrument that they used to play. Those stories always just make me feel very happy. I know everyone's kind of locked down here in COVID times and it's sort of hard to fill the days at times. Like it's this weird mix of feeling overly busy and also like there isn't enough going on. But uh, music can be a really great way to fill some spare hours. I you know dedicate a chunk of every day to practicing which has been a really nice routine to be in. And it's been cool to hear that so many of my listeners are doing the same thing. So thanks everyone who's been sharing that. And if you're studying an instrument, if you're learning a new one, and you want to write in maybe with a question or just a story about something you're working on, feel free. You can always write me at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. 
Thanks, too, of course, to everyone who's become a patron of this show or who has been a patron of this show, some of you, for more than a year now, which is really, really cool and is the thing that makes it possible for me to make this show. I don't sell ads. I don't have sponsors. This is a listener-supported show, so it's just me and all of you, and you're making it possible for me to keep doing this. So thank you so much to all of you. You can find out more about how to support me making strong songs by going to patreon.com slash strong songs. All right, without further ado, let's get into this episode, Strong Song. This is a great song from a very, very very good musical, one that I love quite a bit. It's the first musical that we'll be talking about here in year two. I know that a lot of you out there are musical fans, so I'm really excited for this one. It's always hard to pick a song from a musical since musicals tend to be so interconnected, but there are usually a few songs that kind of contain the elements of the rest of the musical, and that is certainly true of this song. This one comes from the beginning of the musical, and it has a lot of the elements that then turn up later on. It sort of sets the stage for what this story is all about. So what musical are we talking about? What song are we going to talk about? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it first. The first thing that you need to know is it's an old song. The second thing you should know is that it's a love song. It's a song about a beginning. The beginning of a relationship, the beginning of love, the beginning of a story, and fittingly, it takes place near the beginning of the musical. It doesn't necessarily have a happy ending, but that's not why we tell this story. We tell the story because we want to believe that this time, it might. Two lovers meet in a world bound to tear them apart, but maybe, just maybe, this time, It'll end differently. Maybe this time, their love will be enough. Lover, tell me if you can Who's gonna buy the wedding dance? Times being what they are That's right. On this episode, we are going to be talking about Anais Mitchell's musical masterpiece, Hades Town, and the tune that acts as a sort of a Rosetta Stone for the first act, and really the whole musical, the love duet between Orpheus and Eurydice called What Else But Wedding Song. They're gonna break their banks for us And with their gold be generous All the flashing in the pan All to fashion for your hand The river's gonna give us the I am so excited to talk about Hades Town on Strong Songs. I knew I would do an episode about this musical the very first time I heard it. It's one of the best musicals I've ever heard, but note that I say heard because I have not actually seen Hades Town. I did have a whole plan to see it. I knew I was going to talk about probably this song and definitely this musical in year two of Strong Songs, and I had a plan to go to New York. There was a lot of stuff I wanted to do there, and one of the things I was going to do was go see Hades Town on Broadway. But unfortunately, well, life happened, and nobody is going to be seeing a Broadway show for the foreseeable future. So I considered putting this off, waiting until I could finally go see it, and then I realized, you know what? Life is short. Lots of unexpected things tend to happen. You might as well do an episode about the song because I really like the song, and I've seen enough of the musical. I've heard people talk about the musical. I've watched clips. I kind of get what it looks like, and really, I just want to talk about the music because this is a sung-through musical. The music is all by Anais Mitchell, and it has a very distinctive voice. It has her distinctive voice behind it, and I have so much 
much to say about the music that, hey, if I can't always describe to you exactly what's happening on stage, well, that's not the end of the world. So some vital stats up front. I'm going to be talking mostly about Come Home With Me and Wedding Song. Come Home With Me is a sort of very short little song that sets up Wedding Song, and they're kind of woven together in a way that makes me think of them as the same piece of music. So I'm going to mostly be talking about those two pieces of music, though I am going to zoom out some because there are a lot of motifs that are introduced in Wedding Song that then turn up later, and this musical, like many great musicals, definitely weaves a lot of motifs and ideas together. It has a lot of very cool mirroring. Heck, the final song is essentially a mirror of the beginning song, and the whole idea of the musical is that this is a classic story, in this case the story of Orpheus and the Underworld, that we tell over and over and over again, so repetition and mirroring are very thematically important to the musical. So Town is written by Aeneas Mitchell. It was also developed with Michael Chorney, who is a saxophone and guitar player. He plays guitar in the original cast. He performs with the cast on stage. He's on this recording playing guitar. And he did the sort of orchestrations and arrangements while Aeneas Mitchell wrote all the music. So he was a big part of this as well. Chorney's co-orchestrator Todd Sikafus also played an integral role in the orchestrations on the Broadway cast version of the show. Sikafus produced the original Town concept album. He's also a longtime collaborator of Ani DeFranco's, and DeFranco played the role of Persephone on the concept album. So Aeneas Mitchell is a very well-known singer-songwriter. She's been releasing brilliant albums for years. She's always been a great storyteller, and so it's natural that she would write a sort of extended musical story the way that she did with Town. So she wrote the music and the lyrics and the book for Town, which means this is really her vision. It's a lot to get your head around the idea of writing something so big and dense as a musical, especially one like this. So next time you listen to Town, just bear in mind, one person wrote all this music. Now, I know a lot more about music than I do about Greek mythology, so hopefully you'll forgive me if I just give you a Notes synopsis of what Town is about. Okay, synopsis begins. It's the story of Orpheus and the Underworld, or that's how it was always described to me, though it's a reimagined version of it with some aspects of the story changed. The musical is basically the story of two parallel relationships. There's the relationship between Orpheus and Eurydice, two mortals, he's the son of a muse and one of the greatest musicians alive, and then there's the relationship between Hades and Persephone, who are king and queen of the Underworld and are both gods. There's also Hermes, who's sort of the narrator. He's played by Andre de Shields in the Broadway production, and he is incredible. Okay, so Hades Town's telling of this story. I'm going to try to nutshell it as quickly as I possibly can. So Hades and Persephone have been married for a long time. Part of their marriage, since she lived up on the surface and he lived down in Hades, was that she would get to go back to the surface for half of the year, and that's the explanation for where the seasons come from. She is the representation of summer and spring and growth, and when she leaves, the world turns to winter. Now, she's been leaving for longer periods of time, and the seasons are all screwed up at the beginning of the musical. Like, spring and fall are totally gone summer is really, really short, and it's kind of because Persephone and Hades' relationship has soured, and he doesn't let her go as much. He really kind of covets her and has become dark and jealous while he's building this huge, you know, empire of industry under the earth. So on the surface of the earth, things are not good. Things aren't growing. People are starving. It's kind of a Great Depression. There's a lot of sort of Depression-era music and also just um, imagery associated with the surface world, and that's where Orpheus and Eurydice live. They fall in love, and 
And in the musical's telling, Eurydice is starving while Orpheus is trying to write this great song that will bring back spring and kind of change the world back to how it used to be because he's such an amazing musician. I know, I know, tale as old as time. Musician is convinced that his wonderful art is going to provide food, but it never does. Meanwhile, his partner is starving and doesn't know what to do. So this is based on the famous myth um, where Eurydice winds up down in Hades with Hades, living in Hades town, and Orpheus goes off after her. He eventually sings a song so beautiful that it moves Hades and Persephone to let Eurydice go, which is unprecedented, but Hades makes this deal where Orpheus has to walk out of the underworld the whole way, all by himself, with Eurydice just a few paces behind him, but he can never look back to check on her. He can never doubt that she's there, and if he does, she goes back to Hades forever. Now, anyone who's heard this myth knows how it ends. A cool thing about the musical is that it sort of raises the question of what that means and what it means to tell a myth and a story like this when we know how it ends, when we know that it's a tragedy. They say right at the very beginning of this musical, this is a tragedy. And the answer for why we tell the story is that each time we tell it, you never know, right? You can always believe that maybe it'll turn out differently this time. So that's the framework for the song that we're going to be talking about. That's Hadestown. And I hope that if you haven't listened to Hadestown before listening to this episode, that you'll go listen to it after listening to this episode, because there's a lot there. And like a lot of great musicals, it becomes more and more rewarding the more times you check it out. So Anais Mitchell first started working on Hadestown way back in 2006 in Vermont, and she's been sort of working on the idea this whole time ever since then. It was sort of conceived of as a musical, and then she eventually released this 2010 concept album with a whole bunch of great singers on it that is super worth checking out. It actually opens with Wedding Song, and it's a more stripped-down version of Wedding Song than the one that's in the musical, which I'll discuss when I talk about the musical version, but the concept album version stands on its own. Mitchell herself plays Eurydice, and Justin Vernon, the lead singer of Bon Iver plays Orpheus. It's really cool. Check it out. Lover, tell me if you can, who's gonna buy the wedding bands? Times being what they are. So then whenever Orpheus sings, he's overdubbed so he sounds like a choir. Lover, when I sing my song, all the rivers sing along, and they're gonna break their bands for me. That's just how he sounds. Hold around my feet, all the fashion in the band. All the fashion for your hand The river's gonna give us a wet man so the concept album was really cool in its own right. That was in 2010. But Mitchell just kept working on it from there. She kind of workshopped it and spun it up and kept getting it bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually, it wound up on Broadway. The Broadway version is directed by Rachel Shavkin, who is a really cool director. It looks like an amazing musical. It's this like three-tiered stage that rotates in different directions. The whole band is up on the stage, which is something I really love in a musical. You can hear it all, actually, when you listen to it. Like, when I listened to this, I hadn't seen it at all. When I finally watched clips of it, it looked exactly how I was picturing it in my mind, which is always a good sign. So that brings us up to present in 2019, Town premieres on Broadway. In the subsequent Tony Awards, it wins like every award. It's a hugely heralded, crashing success, and then people start making podcast episodes about it. So like I mentioned, Town is a sung-through musical, which means if you listen to the original cast recording from 2019, you pretty much hear the entire musical, so you can really get the whole experience by listening to it. It's much like Hamilton in that respect, and that's pretty cool because it means that because we can't go see the show, you can can still listen to it, and you're not missing whole huge sections of conversation or big parts of the story. 
In the original Broadway cast, Eva Noblezada plays Eurydice and Reeve Carney plays Orpheus. So those are our two leads, and they're the two singers who feature in Wedding Song. The other three leads, as I mentioned, there's Andre de Shields, who plays Hermes. There's also Amber Gray, who plays Persephone, and Patrick Page, who plays Hades. Page has this amazing bass vocal register that is so low. He goes all the way down, and I can't even get close to where he sings. It's just um, kind of mind-blowing listening to him. So they're not going to feature a lot in this episode, though they will turn up a little bit later because they do sing a song that is a pretty cool mirror of wedding song and is of course very deliberately designed to be that way. Alright, so let's get into it, and let's start with a piece of music that actually is a separate track on the album. It's called Come Home With Me. This is when Orpheus first sees Eurydice, and Hermes encourages him to go talk to her, and this chord progression is really lovely. This is just a sort of four-chord chord progression that isn't in the original concept album version of Wedding Song, but plays a pretty important part in the Broadway production version of the song. You want to talk to her? Yes. Go on. Orpheus. Yes. Don't come on too strong. I'm sure he's going to take that advice to heart. Come home with me. (laughs) Who are you? The man who's going to marry you. Amorphius. Is he always like this? Yes. I'm Eurydice. Your name is like a melody. A singer. Is that what you are? I also play the so this is a really classic chord progression. We're in the key of A here, and it's kind of just an A chord that stays static in terms of the chord that's playing, and the bass note is moving around, and that kind of just changes the harmony that's being implied. So we start with an A in the bass, and this is just an A major chord. So then the bass note goes from A to B to E to D, and then just sort of cycles through those four notes. So we get an A major chord over A, which is just A. Then we get an A major chord over B, which is like a B sus. Then we get an A major chord over E, which is an E sus. And then we get an A major chord over D, which is like a D major 9. So you don't have to think about it in terms of that harmony. If you're playing this on piano, you can just kind of play like an A major chord in your right hand and just move between those four bass notes. And you get a really nice sounding chord progression that gives it this just sort of cyclical movement, you know, this sense of constant movement without being really tense, you know, there's not a lot of tension, it's not really going anywhere. It's just kind of rotating in this peaceful, beautiful space. Now, it sounds cool on piano, but I think it sounds really good on guitar. I think the way that Jorney is playing this is just really nice. This is a very classic finger-style sort of pattern to play. He's up on the fifth fret, and you can kind of just walk your fingers around, and by leaving the B and the E string, the first and second strings, ringing, you get that B string ringing, which is the 9 or the 2 in the key of A, and that just gives it this really nice kind of close... It's not it's not too dissonant, but it's just sort of a close sound. It sounds really, really good with that ringing open B, and then later he goes up to the E. So he's starts just playing kind of octaves on an A between just an A and then an A up the octave and then just gradually starts easing in the upper strings the top three strings or the first three strings with that sort of finger style pattern as the song grows more complex and it's really just guitar and vocals for the first significant chunk of this piece of music come home with me who are you the man who's gonna marry you Amorphius. Is he always like this? Yes. I'm Eurydice. Your name is like a melody. A singer. 
Is that what you are? So the guitar is really nice. There's also something cool going on with Orpheus's vocals. If you remember, in the original concept album version, Justin Vernon has kind of overdubbed himself to have this choral quality whenever he sings, which I think is sort of a, a symbol of how Orpheus is this ethereal, like otherworldly singer because he's the greatest musician in the world. So here that function is performed by the chorus, you know, the ensemble. The Hades Town's chorus is actually pretty small. You can really hear the individual voices, and I think it it gives a nice sort of personal sound to this musical in general, this show does not have a big cast, especially compared to, you know, some really big show. So as a result, you can hear the individual voices, and that gives it a sort of a a personal quality that I really like. That's true of the band as well. There aren't that many players in the band, and each instrument, there tends to only be one person playing it. So there isn't really like a violin section or a brass section. There is a violin player and a trombone player. You can hear them all really clearly, and as a result, it makes the band kind of sound like a collection of individuals. Same thing goes for the chorus, and the chorus is doing something really cool when they come in to back Orpheus up when he sings The Man Who's Gonna Marry You, I'm Orpheus. Listen to how they sing that, and then listen to how they sing his reaction to Eurydice's name. Who are you? The man who's gonna marry you. I'm Orpheus. So some really nice harmonies there. Now listen to what they do when he tells Eurydice that her name is like a melody. I'm Eurydice. Your name is like a melody. Sounds different, right? That's on purpose. That's because they go to unison. They start in harmony, in this nice three-part harmony. I think there are three chorus members singing, and one of them is just matching Orpheus's note during that first part. And then in that second part, all three of those voices come into perfect unison. It's a really effective trick. So we go from this... I'm Orpheus! to this. Your name is like a melody. That's a uniquely beautiful sound, just a group of different voices all singing in total unison with one another like that, female and male vocals. It's just, it's a really beautiful sound and I love the way they deliver it because, you know, Eurydice, that name is like a melody. I'm Eurydice. Your name is like a melody. A singer. Is that what you are? I also play the lyre. Oh, a lyre and a player too. I've met too many men like you. Oh no, I'm not like that. All right, I think it's time for a new instrument. You met. Tell her what you're working on. I'm working on a song. It isn't finished yet. But when it's done, and when I sing it, spring will come again. So you were hearing a small but very important instrument to the sound of Hades Town. That is Brian Dry on the Glockenspiel. And Dry does play Glockenspiel at some very nice moments in this musical, but he's actually the trombone player, or at least that's what I think of him as first and foremost. The trombone in Hades Town is the only horn, and man, Dry just kills it in this musical. A wedding song barely features any trombone. There's only a little bit there, which is too bad because he's featured very prominently on some other songs. In fact, he kicks off the whole musical, and the first time that I listened to this original cast recording, from the very beginning I knew I was going to be into it because it begins like this. Like what? <laughs> there are a lot of ways that you can begin a musical, but a solo trombone laying it down is unexpected, but welcome. So, while I'm going to be talking about Dry's glockenspiel playing, mostly on Wedding Song, I do want to give some props to his trombone playing, because I mean... The dude can play. Man, you know... Trombone pocket like this kind of makes me want to add some sax. You know what I mean? 
<laughs> I mean, I'm not saying like everything needs sax. I'm just saying trombone and sax. They sound pretty good together. Okay, okay, so back to wedding song. Brian Dry does not get to do his trombone thing on this song. It probably wouldn't really fit the vibe, but uh, the dude can definitely play trombone. He's also great at glockenspiel, though, and I think that the glockenspiel is a wonderful texture for this part of the song, and it's pretty cool that it is the first non-guitar instrument to come in while Orpheus and Eurydice are first feeling one another out. I'm working on a song It isn't finished yet But when it's done And when I sing it Spring will come again. Come again? Spring will come. And now that the glockenspiel has opened the door, the other instruments in the band all start coming in. I can't recall. That's what I'm working on. A song to fix what's wrong, take what's broken, make it whole. A song so beautiful, it brings the world back into tune, back into time, and all the flowers will bloom. I love how that section layers. It introduces a bunch of instruments, kind of all of the major sounds. The glockenspiel is already in, playing those kind of steady ascending lines. Then the piano comes in, first on that very low note along with the glock. Then the strings come in, I think it's the violin, just sort of plucking a pizzicato note on upbeats. The piano stays in and begins playing this nice, lush, sort of descending scale line. Meanwhile, the backup vocals are actually tearing apart from Orpheus in some really beautiful ways. I love that high A. It's just like, a song! And a single member of the chorus just holds that. It's kind of over in the left. Song to fix what's wrong. And it repeats on the word song again. A song so beautiful. So cool. The world back into tune. Back into time. And all the flowers will bloom. And that just leaves two instruments. Become my wife. Oh, he's crazy. The bass. Why would I become his wife? Maybe because he'll make you feel alive. And the drums. Alive? That's worth a lot. And with the whole band now playing... What else you got? It's time for Wedding Song. So man, I really love that transition. I love the way they go into this groove. It's a pretty different groove. It's in a different key. It's a very different kind of a sound. This is more of a dominant seventh, sort of a blues sound, and we're down in G now. But the transition from that very dreamy, sort of placid A major that we were in for Come Home With Me down into this a little bluesier, you know, dominant seventh G sound. I love the way that the band kind of sneaks in, and they don't waste a whole lot of time with it. The minute the whole band is in, right as the drums come in, they kick right over into Wedding Song. groove rules. It's defined largely by the guitar, by Chorney's guitar part, and also by the drums, which are being played by a killer New York drummer, Ben Porowski, who brought so much creativity to all of his playing on Hadestown. I love the drumming on this entire recording. And it's really the interplay between the guitar and the drums that define the groove on Wedding Song. So let's start with the guitar. We're in the key of G, and he's kind of just playing like a three notes. It's a G, and then a D, so the fifth above that, and then a G. This is in an open, just sort of G fingering position. It's, this actually doesn't require very many 
fingers to do this figure. So it starts with a G to the D, then it goes to a G to an E, which is kind of implying C over G, and then a G to an F, which is that flat seventh that gives it that kind of bluesy mixolydian sound, and then back down, and then he'll occasionally just sort of hit that G up the octave on the open string, which sounds like this when you play it all together. Okay, so that leads Porowski's drums to kind of define this groove. The drums are pretty cool. There is a thump, there is a pop, and there is a sizzle, but they're in a pretty different place than uh, your average song. So here's my rough recreation of the drum part. It's something kind of like this. So the counting is a one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. It's an unusual groove because the downbeat is nowhere near as emphasized as it is in a lot of types of music. The kick drum, that thump, is actually on the two and the four. So this like... Gives it this nice kind of bouncy groove that lines up really nicely with the guitar. When we put them both together, it sounds like this. Another somewhat unusual thing about that drum part is that the snares are off. The little wires underneath the snare drum that make it sound like pop, you know, that give it that pop sound, are actually turned off and relaxed. So in addition to those cool rim shots and sort of clicks that he's getting by hitting his sticks against the hardware of the drum set, he's getting a sort of pure snare drum sound with the snares turned off, which just makes it sound kind of like a higher tuned tom, and that just gives it a kind of different energy. So along with them, the bass is actually just playing a steady pedal down on a G, just kind of quarter notes down on G. Meanwhile, I think this is the cello, it might be the violin down low, starts out on a G, holds that note for a little bit, and then switches to pizzicato and starts chiming in with a very slight little pizzicato hit. And the piano is playing something really cool, just a big power chord, a G and a D and a G. Remember, a power chord is just the root and the fifth, there's no third, so it's kind of like doesn't have really defined harmony, it's very open sounding. And when you play root, fifth, root on piano, it has this very big sound. It's a very open sound with a lot of space in it because you basically got a G to a D, which is a fifth, and a D to a G, which is a fourth, and I guess also a G to a G, which is an octave. Those are the three perfect intervals, a perfect fourth, perfect fifth, and perfect octave, and they're just very big. There's no tension there. You know, they, they give this sense of a kind of yawning chasm of open space. So I'd say that if the guitar and the drums are what define the groove here, the piano defines the energy, just the sort of atmosphere, which is this sort of beautiful, open, mysterious sound. And it really just all works beautifully together. So let's listen to my little recreation of this groove. We've got the guitar doing that kind of walking up thing from D to E to F. We've got the drums with the kick kind of steady there on the two and the four, giving that sort of bouncy, swinging groove. We got the bass just pedaling steady quarter notes down on a G. The string starts down on a held G and then switches to pizzicato to just add a little bit of flavor, and the piano playing that big yawning open octave with the fifth in the middle. See if you can hear all of that at the same time. Ears on, here we go. Alright, that's enough of my recreation. Let's go back to the original and listen to that from the start, and let's get into the verse. Can. 
So this song is structured as a conversation. It doesn't follow typical verse-verse-chorus song form. The verses are sung first by Eurydice and then by Orpheus as she sort of asks him, okay, well, what are you going to do about this? And he says, well, this is what I'm going to do. So she says, where are you going to get the wedding bands? And he says, well, here's where we're going to get the wedding bands. And she says, okay, so who's going to lay the wedding table? And he says, here's how we're going to lay the wedding table. So the whole thing is kind of structured that way. They don't actually sing at the same time during this song because the whole thing is a little bit of a dance. They're kind of feeling one another out. And she's not sold on Orpheus at all. You know, at the beginning, she's sort of like, oh, who is this musician guy, this dreamer? He's going to be totally useless. So she's posing these questions to him to kind of feel him out. So they don't sing in harmony because they're kind of oppositionally arranged throughout this entire song. Well, okay, not the entire song, like 98% of the song, but let's file that away for later. So lyrically, I really like how this song works because it's this great juxtaposition between the two characters. Basically, you've got the realist and the idealist. Eurydice is the realist and Orpheus is the idealist. So Eurydice has lived in the world. She knows what it means to be hungry. She knows how hard it is out there. And her questions are very practical. She may be asking, you know, who's going to buy the wedding bands? Who's going to lay the wedding table? What she's really saying is, are you going to be able to provide for us? You're like this guy with a lyre who sings songs. I know you're saying you're writing the greatest song ever that's going to fix the world, but for real, we need to eat. So at first, Orpheus is giving these answers that are very beautiful. You know, he's like, oh, well, when I sing my song, all the rivers will sing along. They'll break their banks for us and there will be gold in the river and the gold will give us rings and oh for the table you know all the trees will just bend down and they'll lay their fruit on the ground for us and we'll just eat because my music is so beautiful that the world will just provide which isn't that lovely but lovely thoughts don't always actually provide food as the rest of this musical clearly bears out so that's kind of the dynamic for these first two exchanges musically it's cool because the band just kind of falls into this steady groove it gets a little bit more complex as it builds but really they're just sort of enjoying this vibe as these two potential lovers vibe on one another and try to figure one another out. Lover, tell me if you can, who's so listen for that fiddle over on the left. Times being what they are. And then it's joined by the cello for Orpheus's verse. Lover, when I sing my song, all the rivers will sing along. So that's a cool texture. The violin and the cello sort of harmonize together on the same harmony that the guitar part is playing, that sort of D up to E up to F thing, that bluesy sound. But it adds a nice texture for when Orpheus comes in and starts singing. It sort of differentiates his part of the verse. And the string part just keeps developing from there. There's a lot of nice stuff happening. Fashion in the pan, all to fashion for your hand. The river's gonna give us the So harmonically, this song is pretty simple. It's a lot of that G pedal, but then every now and then they'll go up to a B flat, and then they'll go to a B flat to a C, which is kind of the turnaround. And that minor third going from a G, kind of G dominant sound, up to a B flat, that's a really nice sound. And uh, it turns up in a million different songs, especially in this kind of like Dust Bowl folk sound. And they really make the most of it in this tune. The river's gonna give us the Now I find those three notes interesting, the three notes that the strings and the glockenspiel play at the end of the phrase. The cello is harmonizing, but the violin and the glockenspiel play a D to an F sharp, which is the major seventh, up to a G. Sounds like this. 
That F sharp sticks out, usually there's an F natural here, that dominant 7th, so having a major 7th is just a little bit dissonant, and I think that these songs and these arrangements, I think that um, Mitchell and Chorney have done a good job with the arranging here and coming up with ways of adding just a little bit of dissonance to the song. Usually it's just kind of at the margins, but it's hinting at the fact that as much as this is a song about two people falling in love, this is a tragedy, and this isn't going to end well, and their love, as real and beautiful as it is, is doomed. Now there's something else that I hear here in this string glockenspiel part, and that's sort of foreshadowing a melody that comes in later. It's this motif that's hinted at throughout the entire musical and then really comes to the fore at the very, very end, and that is Doubt Comes In. So in the climactic moments of Hades Town, Orpheus and Eurydice have to walk out of Hades, but they have to go single file and Orpheus can't look back at Eurydice, remember, or he loses her forever, and it's this question of doubt. Is he going to doubt that she's there? Is he going to doubt her love for him, and as expressed in a very similar three-note motif by the Fates, a trio of singers who follow Eurydice around throughout the entire musical, doubt does come in. Doubt comes in, the wind is changing. Doubt comes in, how cold it's blowing. Doubt comes in. So those three notes, doubt comes in, they move quite a bit through that harmony. There's a lot of close harmony happening there. But when I hear that string glockenspiel part in the beginning of Wedding Song, it really makes me think of Doubt Comes In, especially because of where it's placed in the song. Orpheus will make this declarative, bold statement of what he's going to provide. But as he says it, doubt still creeps in. Eurydice's own doubts have not been assuaged. She still is not sold. So Orpheus sticks with it in the face of Eurydice's doubt. He keeps giving his sales pitch and describing how amazing his song will be. Right into a key change. I really love this instrumental interlude. So I like this section for a lot of reasons. We've gone up to D, and this whole thing is just kind of a D pedal with this really nice two-part string melody moving over it um, while some choreography is happening on stage. But after this key change to D, they change keys yet again, and this is where the Broadway version of this song really differentiates itself from the original concept album version. So on the concept album, it's actually just really straightforward. It's just the conversation between Orpheus and Eurydice. The whole thing is in the key of C. There are no key changes. And that little instrumental interlude which in the Broadway version is in, goes up to the key of D. That happens in the original, but it doesn't change keys. It's just still in C. And the whole thing just feels a lot more kind of grounded as a result. For the Broadway version, there's way more storytelling that needs to happen. There are whole new sections. Orpheus performs his song. There are multiple dialogue sequences in the middle of the song where characters just speak. So as a result, Mitchell has come up with all these new sections, this way of making the song feel like it's gradually unfolding. The key changes are a large part of that. It starts in A, then it goes into G, then it goes to D, for the interlude, then it goes back to A, then it goes to C for the song that Orpheus sings in the middle, then it goes back to G. So it's changing keys a lot more, and that gives it much more of a sense of motion, especially when compared with the 2010 concept album version. 
The first major departure happens right now. We're in the key of D for this interlude, but instead of going back to G to do another verse, they actually change keys back to A, going all the way back to the beginning, and just like that, we're going through those four chords from the start in the key of A. So when you sing your song, the one you're working on, spring will come again. Yes. Why don't you sing it then? So for this dialogue interlude, we're back in the key of A, doing that nice cyclical four chord chord progression that we started with during Come Home With Me, and Eurydice is definitely still skeptical. I like how she says, spring will come again. Like, you can just hear the disbelief dripping on her voice. Spring will come again. So Eurydice has not been convinced by his sweet words. She is not yet a believer, which means it's time for Orpheus to show her what he can really do. Thus comes arguably the most important musical moment of Hadestown, certainly one of the most important musical moments of this show. Reeve Carney as Orpheus busts out his best Jeff Buckley falsetto and performs the main melody from this song he's been working on, which I kind of just call the song. It's a pair of seven-note motifs that combine to define everything that comes after them. It's the most important 14 notes in Hadestown. And as he sings this melody, everything changes. You want to take me home? Yes. Sing the song. of just a few measures of music, Eurydice goes from Spring will come again dripping with disdain to You have to finish it. She's bought in. Something magical just happened. This song really is magic. It really could bring balance back to the world and suddenly everything has changed. Now that song and the melody to that song, it's a really cool melody. It's beautifully sung by Reeve Carney. I love what happens with the chorus, with the ensemble when they come in, and I want to talk about all of that as well as some of the ways that this melody turns up later in the musical. But before that, I feel like this moment is where the fact that I haven't seen Hadestown is really kind of holding me back. Something momentous happens here, and it happens on stage. It doesn't just happen in the music, and I'm not able to describe that to you because I wasn't able to go to New York to see Hadestown. Still, though, the episode doesn't feel complete unless I can at least kind of describe to you all what happens during this sequence, so I decided to call in an assist. That assist comes in the form of the wonderful author, video essayist, and podcaster Lindsay Ellis, who, in the process of making the Hadestown episode of her musical theater podcast, Musical Splaining, went to New York and saw Hadestown. She's actually seen it multiple times and really likes the musical, so she's very read in. She knows all the Greek mythology, has a whole bunch of complex takes on the story and themes and characters of this musical. Our paths have crossed a few times in the world of media, so I reached out and I asked if she would be down to come and describe to you all what happens on stage when Orpheus sings his song in the middle of Wedding Song. I'll let her take it from here, so without further ado, here's Lindsay. 
So Hades Town is a show with like a fairly simple setup, but extremely complex blocking. And it uses fairly simple tools to accomplish the blocking. Basically, at the beginning of the show, you have a bunch of tables and chairs that are set up. I think it's like three or four tables. They're about the size of a large picture frame. And they use the tables to sort of emulate things that are being described in the song. So basically, the ensemble acts both as audience, but also as set dressing and prop. So when Orpheus says, uh, lover, when I sing my song, all the rivers are going to sing along. Lover, when I sing my song, all the rivers will sing along. And they're going to break their banks for us. The ensemble uh, uses the tables to sort of emulate a river, like it almost moves like waves. So basically you have like five people behind Orpheus and Eurydice, lifting them up with the choreography or moving them around to emulate rivers or trees. Then around halfway through the song, Orpheus kind of does, has this sort of trust fall moment. Um, Eurydice says, "Uh, you want to take me home? And he's like, yes. Well, if you want to take me home, you need to sing this amazing song you've been working on. So this is the point where the ensemble put the tables sort of in front of Orpheus and he starts walking along them almost like a plank. So one ensemble member will take a table that he's just walked on and put it in front of him. And the whole time he's walking with his eyes closed. Uh, So it's sort of this trust fall moment. And then once he gets to the final table, which is at this point at the center of the stage, he turns to the audience. He's got a he's got a carnation in his hand. This is the moment where Eurydice's like, oh, I guess I guess this guy really does have something. So when she says, "How did you do that?" she's asking, "How did you make a flower bloom out of literal thin air?" Because um, you know we haven't seen flowers in many a year because uh, the the seasons are all screwed up because uh, the gods have forgotten the song of their love. Persephone is not happy. Hades is not happy. But Orpheus has the ability to bring life back into well this one carnation. And then after that, the blocking gets fairly simple, and the focus basically stays completely on Orpheus and Eurydice. And by the end of the song, uh, Eurydice is pretty much sold. She's like, okay, this, this guy, you know, he talked a big game, but he can pop a carnation out of thin air. He can get it. How'd you do that? I don't know. The song's not finished, though. Even so, it can do this? I know. You have to finish it. (laughs) So I knew something momentous happened during that part of this song. I didn't actually realize how momentous it was, and I was really glad that Lindsay explained it. Orpheus conjures forth the red carnation, which is a super important visual motif for the entire musical. That carnation follows Orpheus into the underworld. He's carrying it with them when he tries to walk out of the underworld at the end of the show. It's the symbol of his love for Eurydice and love in general, and kind of the symbol for the entire show. I mean, it's the central object on the show's poster. So, the red 
Red Carnation is very important, and this is the moment when he conjures it forth. His song is so powerful, even in its unfinished state, that it can conjure life from nothing. It can summon this carnation, and that proves to Eurydice that he's not all talk. He actually has something special. For all her initial doubts and misgivings about him, he could be the one to bring the world back into tune. Now, I do not envy Anais Mitchell's task here. She basically has to write the greatest song ever, the song that will save the world and bring things back into balance and remind the king and queen of the underworld of their love for one another. But I think that this melody that Anais Mitchell wrote that she used as the central motif for the song uh, really works. So the key changes again when they go into this section. This part is in C. It's kind of a C mixolydian thing with the guitar just going back and forth between a G and a C. Over that foundation, the melody initially begins on a high B flat and just kind of walks down a C mixolydian scale. Then the second phrase starts on a high D and walks down a kind of a more D minor sound, though it's still in the key of C mixolydian. And those two motifs, those two seven note clusters, make up the entirety of the song, or at least the primary motif that plays over and over again throughout the rest of the musical. Now, obviously we hear at any time that Orpheus is working on the song or performing the song. He does various versions of it. It's called Epic. That's kind of the actual name of the song. And each time that he performs it, he always sings that melody, or when you see him off trying to figure out the final version of it, he sings the melody too. It's usually very clear when that happens. Sometimes, though, it actually turns up in this really cool condensed form. For instance, right before the song Wait For Me, after he finds out that Eurydice is gone and has gone to the underworld and he's sort of lost her while he was in his reverie writing the song, you hear this on the piano. Sound familiar? Take those notes and play them really quickly and it sounds like this. Slow them down and it sounds like this. The last note is different, but it's still a condensed version of that second phrase from the melody from Orpheus's song. Another place it comes in is actually during Doubt Comes In, near the end of the musical. Orpheus begins singing the melody to himself, and as he's doing that, the piano plays that condensed version as an echo. So it's an important melody, and I really like the way that they roll it out in this part of Wedding Song, and how they kind of develop it and build it as Orpheus himself builds the song into something magical. So it's just guitar and vocals to begin with, but then the echoes begin. And it keeps building building until it finally resolves. The whole sequence just beautifully conveys the fact that this melody, this song, is magic. It's somehow different than all the music you've been hearing before. They do that by changing the key. It's very stylistically different than the rest of the song. It sticks out, and that steady build, just that pulsing swell with those low C's and low G's, just this wide-open sound as the ensemble gets louder and louder and everybody begins to sing it together. Meanwhile, on drums, Prowski is doing something cool that's called a cymbal wash. He's just doing these washes on the cymbals where you kind of just lightly roll mallets or sticks to get this bright, wide sound that doesn't have a strong impact and just sounds sort of like water crashing over you. 
It's an effective way of communicating the magic of this melody and the power of this song. So I'm describing the tonality of this as basically C mixolydian. It is all kind of over a low C pedal, though it's a little nebulous. It's kind of like G minor-y sound with a C in the bass. I love the way that the ensemble has been arranged, the vocal ensemble, the way that they sort of layer and come in and out of focus with Orpheus. And there's one other thing that I really love. It's over in the right, and it's just playing a low G. I wonder if you can hear it if you listen for it. Here it sounds like some sort of a horn, like maybe a low brass instrument of some sort. Yes, for just this one note, Brian Dry has put down his glockenspiel mallets and picked up his trombone to give us this lovely resonant low G, and it adds so much to this section of the song. But then again, I mean, when didn't a trombone make a song better? (laughs) So, aided by that beautiful low trombone note, the voices of the choir, a nice cymbal wash from the drums, and a big building sound from the band, Orpheus takes us through his magical melody, conjures a carnation from thin air, and resolves back to the key of G. How'd you do that? I don't know. The song's not finished, though. So it can do this. And so with Eurydice convinced, you have to finish it. It's time for the final verse. Lover, tell me when we're wed. Who's gonna make the wedding there? Times be what they are. Hard and getting harder all the time. The song still has that back and forth lyrical structure, but it doesn't feel so oppositional anymore. It feels more celebratory. Lay their feathers on the ground And we'll lie down and hide it down A pillow needs our heads The bird's gonna make the wedding bed Now, Wedding Song is a love song. It's a song about two people, Orpheus and Eurydice, falling in love. Hadestown is a love story, but it's kind of two parallel love stories, Orpheus and Eurydice and Hades and Persephone. There's a lot of mirroring between those two couples throughout the musical. They're very different. Orpheus and Eurydice just met their young lovers. They're mortals. Meanwhile, Hades and Persephone have been together since time immemorial. They're both immortal gods. You know, they're both kind of sick of each other, and their relationship has soured in a lot of ways. But just like in the original myth, Orpheus's ability to get Eurydice out of Hades town hinges on his ability to sing a song that reminds Hades and Persephone of their love for one another. And to do that, Orpheus has to channel his own love for Eurydice and make Hades see himself in Orpheus. So the whole thing is kind of building toward that moment where this reflection has to happen and Hades has to reflect on his relationship with Persephone and realize how similar he is in some ways to Orpheus and to just have empathy for this young couple whose fate he holds in his hands. So the musical is doing a lot of work to set up these parallels as it builds toward that moment. And one of the coolest ways it does it is actually in using this conversational back and forth song. Form. So Wedding Song establishes the form. Orpheus and Eurydice sing back and forth to one another in a conversation. First she's sort of wary and suspicious of him, she's not bought in. Then he conjures forth the carnation, shows who he really is, and she falls for him. So just in the course of this song, this kind of back and forth form has been used to demonstrate wariness and then to demonstrate a sort of playful flirtation. The same song form turns up again during the show-stopping full cast number, Chant. Keep your head low. Oh, you gotta keep your head low. Oh, you gotta keep your head low. 
Can't is an amazing song. It's a centerpiece song, sort of one of those linchpin tunes that ties everything together. So much happens in parallel in this song. Orpheus is off trying to write his masterpiece. Eurydice is despairing and trying to find food. Meanwhile, Hades has taken Persephone back down to Hadestown, and she sees what he's done with the place while she's been gone during the abbreviated summer. And he's just built this grotesque, massive underground sprawl of industry, just factories as far as the eye can see, all wet and neon, and she's disgusted by it. He tries to explain to her how his heart is kind of souring and he's turned so dark without her, and as they have the conversation, it's structured the same as Wedding Song, so it's the same frame with a much darker painting. In the coldest time of year, why is it so hot down here? Hotter than a crucible. It ain't right and it ain't natural. Oh, lover, you were gone so long. Lover, I was lonesome. So I built a foundry in the ground beneath your feet. The whole conversation is like a dark mirror version of Orpheus and Eurydice's first meeting. Then I kept that furnace fed with the fossils of the dead. Lover, when you feel that fire, think of it as my desire. Think of it as my desire for you. So again, we have a couple. The woman is challenging the man. The man is responding, lover this, lover that, speaking in metaphors, but the metaphors are twisted and dark. The love has gone rotten on the vine, and of course, it's all the more effective because we saw Orpheus and Eurydice's version first, and we know how it must have been for Hades and Persephone, at least this version of Hades and Persephone, when they first fell in love. Tell me when we're wed Who's gonna make the wedding bed Times be what they are Hard and getting harder all the time When Orpheus sings his song, it's still all kind of nonsense. He's not going to be able to provide food for Eurydice, but she wants to believe. And wanting to believe that the story can have a happy ending? Well, that's what Hadestown is all about. The bird's gonna make the wedding bed so I love the way that Wedding Song ends. It's very, very tidy and a kind of a classic way of ending a conversation song like this. Basically, Orpheus and Eurydice go back and they summarize each of his answers to each of her questions. So, who's going to make the wedding bed? The bird's going to make the wedding bed. Okay, got it. But who's going to lay the wedding table? And the tree's going to lay the wedding table. Okay, right. And how are you going to get the wedding bands? So the two of them are affirming one another, but in between those affirmational statements, you'll hear that violin part that, remember, at least to me, sounds a lot like doubt coming in. And to end the song, Orpheus and Eurydice finally do the thing that they haven't done this entire song, as they've been singing separately from one another in their courtship dance. They stop trading phrases and sing together in harmony. It's a beautiful ending and one of the only truly happy moments in the entire show. Town tells a story that begins beautifully and ends badly, and it asks again and again why we keep telling it if we know how it ends. The reason, Hermes supposes, is that each time we tell it, we hope that maybe, just maybe, this time it'll be different. (music) 
We're all just mortals, and we all sing alone. But if these two can end up harmonizing together, maybe we all can. It's a dream, sure, but we want to believe in it, and maybe that's enough. Maybe this time, the story will end where the song ends, with two voices, harmonizing together, no longer alone. And that'll do it for my analysis of Wedding Song from Anais Mitchell's fabulous musical Hades Town. Special thanks to Lindsay Ellis for coming in to explain what happens when Orpheus sings his song and why that moment is as important visually as it is musically. I'll put links to Lindsay's stuff down in the show notes. You probably know her though. She does a lot of fantastic work on the internet and do check out her musical theater podcast, Musical Splaining. It's a lot of fun. Speaking of a lot of fun, it was a lot of fun to make this episode. I had a great time and I love that I get to make this show for all of you. So thanks for listening and extra special thanks to to all of my Patreon patrons, you're making all of this possible. If you want to know more about how to support me making this show, go to patreon.com slash strong songs. This episode's outro soloist is none other than Mr. Galen Clark on the keyboard, so stick around for Galen's solo, and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song. Thank you.